Good morning. We want to thank our church family for praying for us. Last week we were at the Southern Baptist Convention in Anaheim, California, and we had three families from this church represent this local church body down there to represent you and vote for righteousness, which we did. It did not turn out the way that we expected, but the Lord is still sovereign, and the Lord is still good, and no man and no thing will thwart the hand of the Almighty. Amen? So we will have a chance, Lord willing, this week, the pastors, uh, we will debrief, and then at some point in the near future, we'll share with you what we witnessed with our own eyes. Normally, I don't preach a Father's Day message. Uh, at this church, we pick a book, and we go verse by verse, exposition through the Bible, and whatever verse we're on or chapter we're on, that's what we preach. So normally, I'm not in the custom of uh, preaching a Father's Day message, but I believe that because of the current environment that we're in today in America, it's much needed to preach a message to fathers. Fatherlessness, single parents, especially moms, is a big challenge in, in America. Fatherlessness in homes is a massive problem. There was an article that came out January of 2021 from Modern Gentleman. Modern Gentleman is a lifestyle, health, and fitness magazine. And they have an article there about fatherlessness in America. And this is what they say, quote, there are 1.8 million solo dads in the U.S. In other words, there are single dads reaching nearly 2 million. That's probably higher now that we're a year and a half later. But also statistics on absent fathers show that 7 million American dads were absent from the life of all their minor children. This article is saying that there are over 7 million fathers in America that were absent from the entirety of all their children at home. Divorces are one of the leading causes of fatherless homes. We need to think, God's people, the local body of believers, we need to rethink marriage, divorce, and remarriage in a biblical way. We live in a state where divorces, you could divorce somebody for sneezing the wrong way. Also, when it comes to the importance of fathers, they're saying that fathers have a great influence over their children being educated or not in public schools. Father absence statistics show that adolescent women from fatherless homes have a higher chance of getting pregnant. We see that all the time in Las Vegas. According to statistics of fatherless homes, over 17 million children lived in a fatherless home. Some of us have known that pain personally. According to the Department of Justice, statistics on parents in prison show that the number of incarcerated fathers in the U.S. grew significantly in the period from 1991 to 2007. So what do we have in America? I would argue what we have around the world is a global epidemic of fatherless homes. And we're in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32 to 40, which Pastor Corey 
read for us this morning. And I think it's important to understand that Father's Day is not a biblical event in the Bible. Now, it's good to have a Father's Day in the sense that we are reminding fathers, especially Christian fathers, of their biblical role in a marriage and in a family. So, that's my goal today, parents, especially fathers. I want to remind you from the Word of God, what is your role and responsibility today? And if there's any sin in any of us, that we would humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and repent in dust and sackcloth. Because you wonder why America is messed up. You wonder why we live in a world where relationships are destroyed by divorce or murder or gangs or drugs. I would argue that one of the main reasons is that fathers are not doing their jobs at home. Yes, I place the blame of the problems in America at the foot of the church in America. But in the church in America, there are fathers who have neglected their role. So fathers, it would be very wise for you to strain your ears this morning and listen to what the Word of God actually says about you and about me. And if you think that, well, I'm a man and I'm a father, and my only job description is to provide food, clothing, and shelter, you have completely missed the whole point of today's sermon. You've completely missed the point if you think that all I got to do is work hard for my family and provide physical things. I want to say this as graciously as I can. It's easy to make a child. I understand that there are couples in this church that biologically can't conceive, so please don't take that the wrong way. But in general, it is relatively easy to make a child, but it is very difficult to invest in your children in a godly way. We want one, but we don't want the other. You may be thinking, well, there's no father in my home, so this message today doesn't apply to me. I want to encourage you to rethink that position. This message is for you, even though I'm primarily addressing fathers today. And you may be thinking, well, I'm a wife. It's Father's Day. It's not Mother's Day. We, I just had my day a month ago. And so this message doesn't apply to me. Yes, it applies to you as well. It applies to you as well. So we're in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deutero is repeat. That's what it means. Deutero is to repeat. And nami or nomos is the law. So it's repeating of God's law is Deuteronomy and the history of Israel. That's what Deuteronomy is all about. Moses is at the end of his life. He understands it's a matter of time before he dies. God has raised up a new leader. This new young leader is Joshua. God has raised him up. God wants Moses to charge Joshua to prepare to lead the people into the land of Canaan and conquer that land. So that's where we're at. In the first four chapters of Deuteronomy is really a recounting of Moses' leadership. It's about God's care for his people from Egypt to Sinai. And Moses pleads with the Lord, if you remember. He says, Lord, 
Let me enter that good land beyond the Jordan. Did the Lord let him? The answer is no, if you've read your Bibles. The Lord did not allow Moses to go into that good land beyond the Jordan. Why? Because Moses had sinned against God. Moses had sinned against God. The people were complaining, as they usually do. They complained to Moses, Moses, we need water. It's the desert. It's dry. It's hot. We're thirsty. We're talking about two and a half to three million people traveling across the desert. And so Moses is tired of their bickering and complaining. Their incessant, nonstop complaining. God tells Moses, you speak to the rock and the rock will gush out water for the people to drink. Moses, in his frustration against the people, did not speak to the rock. He struck the rock with his staff. Not only did he strike the rock once, but the Bible says he struck the rock twice. That means he's really frustrated. And so we may look at that account and say, well, it's no big deal, Pastor Rollo. It's just one sin. God told him to speak, and he struck the rock twice. The reason we say that is because we have no idea who we have sinned against. You think you're sinning against your fellow man or woman. You've sinned against Almighty, Almighty God who's created you. So it would behoove us to hear the word rightly and obey. The Lord said to Moses, you want to see the land? Get up to the top of Mount Pisgah. Look abroad, southeast, north and west. See all the land, but you are not allowed to enter that physical land. And so today, I want to focus on verse 35 and verse 39 in our text. Verse 35 and 39. And from these verses, we're going to see three critical points in today's text. That God is creator. God is merciful. And God is savior. You should see that in your bulletin. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35 says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. At the beginning of chapter 4, Moses addresses all the people of Israel, and he commands them, You're going into the land, I'm not. You are required, let me remind you, of what your responsibility is. You are to obey the Lord wholeheartedly. You're to obey the Lord, not according to emotions, not according to feelings, not to popular demand, but you are to obey the Lord according to God's revealed word. Whatever God says, you obey. Whatever God has written, you obey. God's revealed word is to be obeyed. And so he's reminding the people of this. He additionally tells the people there's going to be all sorts of idolatry in the land. This is the land of Canaan. There's going to be carved images out of wood and stone. Air, pictures or statues of birds in the air, animals in the air, or animals on the land, or animals in the sea. He says, be very careful. There's going to be pictures or statues or there's going to be an emphasis to worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. It's to worship all the creatures and all of creation. But these people don't worship the creator, God the creator. 
Be mindful of that, people of Israel. You know, there's a point of application here as well, real quick. There are many religions under the sun. They have pictures of who Jesus looks like. They have statues of what Jesus looks like. They have everything of what everybody else looks like. Even if you could get the best artist in the world to come close to who God is and put a picture, it would fall greatly short of the greatness of God. No picture, no statue could ever encompass the greatness of God. That's why God says you don't worship these pictures. You don't worship these statues. Don't do it. Because what's going to end up happening, people, is that you're going to worship this little statue instead of God who created you. This little statue is going to pull your heart away. That's the point. So when we get to verse 35, Moses says to Israel, it was shown to you, it was revealed to you. What was revealed to you? That you might know this is a fact. You are cognizant that the Lord is God. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see that in our English Bibles, that is the personal name of Yahweh. That's the personal name of God. That the Lord is God. There is no other. If you are a Christian and you want to be a biblical Christian, you've got to get to the point in your Christian life that there is no other God but the Creator God, Yahweh. There is one God. We need to catechize our children. There are not multiple gods. I just did this with my children the other night. I say, children, how many gods are there? They all say, one God. How many false gods are there? A million. But there's only one true living God. We need to catechize our children. We need to make sure we understand what we believe and why. And so the world looks at us and, you guys are so exclusive. You're saying all of us are not the same? Exactly. Because God says it. Not because Pastor Rolo says it. God says it. There is no other God but the Lord. So how are the people of Israel to know that the Lord is God? How are they to know that? How are they to know that there's no other God? Remember, Deuteronomy is a repeating of God's law and a repeating of God's, uh, or the people's history, Israel's history. And so there are three things. Number one, he reminds them that God is creator. Look at verse 32. Chapter 4, verse 32. It says this, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth. And ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. God created mankind. God created humanity. God created you. God created the universe and all that it contains. Do we understand that? Do we believe that? Do we hold to that? You know, in Job chapter 38, the Lord challenges Job because Job is making accusations against God that are unfounded, that are not true. I would call it borderline blasphemy. And the Lord reveals Job's foolishness. The Lord has been silent enough. The Lord is now challenging Job. He's complaining. 
his allegations, his accusations. And the Lord says this to Job in Job 38, verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with the doors? When it burst out from the womb. When I made the clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band. And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors. And said, thus far shall you come and no further. And here shall your proud ways be stayed. God challenges Job. He says, you want to complain? You think you have knowledge? You answer me. I'm going to ask you questions. And let's see if you can answer these questions. Who created the waves? Who put a boundary that the oceans can go this far and no further? Who created the universe, Job? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? Speak to me, O man, finite man. God checked him. And God has every right to check him and us. Who are we to challenge the Almighty who created us and saved you for his glory? Isaiah 40, verse 28 says this, Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the eternal God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. His understanding is unsearchable. God is the creator. Rest in that, embrace that, hold on to that, and never let that go. You know, when I was a child... When I came back to America at age eight, I was introduced to the public school system of America. And in America, in a place called Albuquerque, New Mexico, I was taught evolution as theory. Theory. My teachers would say, this is theory. Now, you fast forward all these years, evolution is taught as fact. Not theory anymore. There's no substantial evidence. There's no legitimate documentation. And yet they teach evolution as a fact. But the reality is, is this. The Bible's very clear that God is the creator. Let me share this. If you're a born-again Christian, you cannot hold to creationism and evolution at the same time. That's like oil and water trying to mix. You cannot hold on to both. And I've met many Christians over my life who say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe in the gap theory, and I also believe in Christian evolution, and I also believe in, like, stop, please stop. That makes no sense to me. I'm not the smartest man in the world, but what you're saying, the words that are coming out of your mouth, make no sense to me at all. Prove it with the Bible. Evolution is a lie that comes from the hottest part of hell. 
Because if you accept the fact that God doesn't exist, then sin doesn't matter and the sacrifice of Jesus doesn't matter. It matters. So God is great. God is the creator, which leads to point number two. God is merciful. Look at verse 33. Verse 33. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? What is, what is the author talking about? The author is referring to Exodus 20. The people of God, the people of Israel, are at Mount Sinai. This is a reference to Exodus 20, verse 18. Let me read this for us. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off, and they said to Moses, You, Moses, speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. God tells the people at Mount Sinai, my presence is on this holy mountain, and my holy presence is real. And you do not let any person or any animal touch the base of this mountain. They touch the base of this mountain, they will die instantly. So it would be best for the people to stand afar off. And so the people see this massive mountain. They see the smoke and the thunder and the lightning and the grumbling sounds. And they literally hear the voice of God. And they live. They live. But the people here are saying, if we hear God directly, if God speaks to us directly, their conclusion is correct. They will die. And so why will they die? Because God is holy. See, the reason that we don't think sin is a big deal is because you have no idea who God is. That applies to everybody that we talk to. God is holy. I ask my children all the time, is God holy? They say yes. I say, what does holiness mean? And so this is where the theology comes out. God is set apart. God is separated. God is sacred. God is consecrated. God is completely off the map. He doesn't think like us. He doesn't look like, like, like us. He doesn't react like us. Everything that he does is good and right and perfect. God is holy. That's the reason why we take sin so lightly, is we don't think that God is holy. Oh, we do on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, our functional Christian living betrays us. Moses says to the Lord in Exodus 33, Show me your glory, O Lord. And what does the Lord say to Moses? I will pass by and let you see all my goodness. It'll pass before you. And he says, the Lord says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. But then God says in verse 20, You, Moses, cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. God is holy. God is holy. These people, God's people, heard the voice of God, and they should have died. 
If they were to see the face of God, they will definitely die. And yet they hear the voice of God and they live. Look at verse 31a, the first half of verse 31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. It's because God is merciful, he doesn't consume his people. Because God is merciful, he doesn't destroy his people. God is compassionate. God is merciful. Moses says to the people, you actually heard the voice of God, and God was merciful to you, and you lived. You lived. That's God's mercy upon you. And today, when we hear God's word, or I should say God's voice, we're not looking for some sort of emotional, mystical experience. Either the word of God is the word of God and it's sufficient and it's enough, or it's not. You can't have it both ways. The Bible's very clear that the word of God is sufficient. It's inspired. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It's authoritative. And so we live in a day in a culture where we want to be entertained. We want the spectacular. We want the extraordinary, not the ordinary. We want the supernatural, not the natural. That, in other words, the word of God is not enough. If you want to hear the voice of God, read louder. Read louder. Quit waiting for a mystical experience. You have the word of God in your very own hands. Psalm 116, verse 5 says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Oh, that we would be reminded that the Lord is our God and he's gracious. He's given us unmerited favor. If he didn't, we probably wouldn't even be here right now. Or worse, we would have died in our sin and be cast into hell for all of eternity. The Lord is righteous. Everything he says and everything that he does and every decision is right. Nobody can ever accuse God of wrongdoing. And the Lord is merciful. He gives mercy to people who don't deserve mercy. What sinners deserve is God's judgment. But yet God is merciful. Which leads to point number three. God is Savior. God is Savior. Look at verse 34. Verse 34. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and, a great, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord... The Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. The people of Israel are captive in Egypt. And it is unthinkable for anyone to think that they can redeem a certain people out of the mighty, powerful hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh, which we don't realize, is a king of that land. He has all authority. He has all power. What he says goes. When he makes a decision, it's carried out. If he wants to keep a people oppressed and not let them go, that's exactly what's going to happen. But we're not talking about just anyone. We're talking about the Almighty God. 
We're talking about the true and living God that he has promised to redeem his people. He's promised to save his people. He has promised to bring his people all the way home. So that's the God that we serve. God promised in verse 31 that he will not leave Israel or destroy Israel or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Praise God for that. God does not forget. How many times as we as parents have made promises to our children and we have forgotten them because we're too busy? Worse, we've made promises just to pacify our children so they would be quiet just for a few minutes. And we have no intentions to carry out that promise. And then a couple days pass because we've had busy schedules that we actually forget the promise that we made to our children. But yet when God makes a promise to us, his children, he never forgets. He will carry his promise through. And this covenant or this promise is God's solemn oath that he gave to Abraham. That he's going to give Abraham's descendants a land. A land. In the Old Testament, we see the emphasis of the land as Canaan, the promised land. The land that was promised in the Old Testament. But the land is not ultimately fulfilled in a geographic arena. The ultimate fulfillment of this is not physical land, but beyond that. The focus is a new land. Listen to what the Word of God says in Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he said, Abram, you take your family, you take your people, and you go. You go to a land, 1,500 miles. He has, no, he has no idea at this point in the story how far this journey is, but it's 1,500 miles. He has no idea of the exact destination, but he follows God step by step. He walks by faith and not by sight. He obeys God. And then in verse 10, it says this, For he was looking, Abram, Abraham, for Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The ultimate fulfillment of this is not a land where there's always sin. But the ultimate fulfillment is a land where God's people and God commune together in holiness with no sin whatsoever. So Abraham was looking forward to a greater city, a greater land, a holy heaven. That's what Abraham was looking for. Abraham was looking for. He was not looking for physical Canaan in its ultimate sense. He's looking beyond Canaan. He's looking forward to a heavenly country and a heavenly land whose builder is God. And Abraham's descendants are those who have the same faith as Abraham. That's Romans 4.16. Those who have the same faith as Abraham, those who believe in God's word, those who believe in God's promise, are the descendants or the seed or the lineage of Abraham because they have the same faith as Abraham. 
the ultimate seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ. Even though Abraham didn't see, him, see the Savior with those physical eyes, he knew that the Savior would come in the future. And that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That those who believe in Jesus and those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus are descendants of Abraham. The Lord Jesus Christ. So we're talking about the gospel. The Bible is not talking about if you have a certain physical lineage or ethnicity. It's talking about do you believe in the Savior that God has provided? So those who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior are the ones that God accepts. He's the one that brings them into this heavenly land, this heavenly country, this new Jerusalem. We in America think that we are the ones who are in control. We use language like, well, I'll be a Christian when I'm good and ready. You'll never be good and ready. Well, I'll be a Christian when I accept Jesus into my life. Do you look at Jesus as meek and mild? That Jesus can't save his people? Or do you look at Jesus as the Savior who said, I will save my people. They will be my people. And I will be their God. How do you look at Jesus? It's not a matter of us as human beings accepting God. It's more of God accepting us through Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus Christ, we think that the only way to be saved in America is through a little canned prayer, a little program prayer, the little sinner's prayer. That if I say this genuinely, I'll be a real Christian. Well, it's not because of the prayer. It's because God is gracious to you. God is merciful to you in spite of your prayer. It's God who saves, not the prayer. So from this text, we we see that God is creator, God is merciful, and God is savior. But look at verse 39. Verse 39, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath there is no other. Basically, verse 39 is a recapitulation of verse 35. It's just stated in slightly different terms. He says, lay it to your heart. Understand in your heart that it is a fact that there is one God and that the Lord is God in heaven above and in a, on the earth beneath. There is no other God. There is no other God. You believe that, dear Christian? There are a million dead gods. There are a million false gods. But there is one true and living God. Do you believe that? That's what the Word of God says. We've been reading this for the last 30 minutes. Do you believe that, dear Christian? If you believe that there is one true God, then you, that automatically implies that you believe the word of God. That's what it's implying. And if you believe that, there are serious implications. There are serious consequences to that belief. Let's talk about this. Who is Moses commanding here? Moses is commanding the people of Israel, is he not? Moses is commanding them to obey, 
Moses is teaching the people what they are to do. But I want, you to, I want you to see something here. Chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. And now, O Israel, he's talking to Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may, what? Live. And go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word. You hear that? You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Look at verse 5. Jump to verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. A wise people are people who hear the word of God rightly and obey the word of God. That is a wise people. And what is Moses doing? Moses is teaching the people of God. He's reminding them of their role and their responsibility. He said, when you go into the land, there's going to be problems. But remember this. Remember this. Why? Why does the Bible put so much emphasis in this text and actually throughout the Bible that we are to remember? Look at verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9a. First half of verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you, what, forget the things that your eyes have seen. You've seen it with your own eyes. Unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Why does the Bible emphasizing, reminding the people over and over and over again of their role and responsibility? Because we are forgetful people. We forget. We are a forgetful people. That's why it's important to continually teach God's people what the Word of God says. That's what I'm doing right now in order to remind us of our role and responsibility. And look at the people's responsibility. So Moses is charging the people of Israel, but there's a very specific duty. The second half of verse 9. Look at chapter 4, verse 9, second half. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. We're talking about multi-generational faith. That one generation knows God, knows the word of God, knows the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They teach it to their children, and then they teach it to their children, so on and so forth. We're talking about multi-generational faith. He says, teach the children. Teach them. What are you supposed to teach them? Look at verse 10. Verse 10. How on the day that you stood before the Lord, your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. So, if you're a godly parent, especially a godly father, your job is to teach your children to fear the Lord. Your job is to teach your children to honor the Lord. 
Your job is to have a healthy fear of God, a reverential fear of God, a great respect for God. That is your job, dear parents. And now we live in a culture in 2022 in America where people come together, they have a baby, one is incarcerated or both are incarcerated, one goes away because of drugs, and now the children are the collateral damage and there's no one to take care of the children. So guess what? We live in a culture today where grandparents, thinking that they were retired and they have the easy life, grandparents, you never have the easy life, by the way, now the grandparents takes the grandchildren and brings them to their bosom, brings them into their home, and takes care of them. That's the culture that we live in today. We're seeing more and more and more of that today. But nevertheless, Christian parents or Christian grandparents teach the children to fear God. Teach them. You know, it's interesting to me when we don't teach our children for the first 15 to 16 years of their life what the real gospel is, what biblical doctrine is, and then when they become a late teenager, we say to our children, submit to God, obey God, honor God. That's the first message that they hear out of 15, 16 years of life. And then it's interesting when our children say to us, but you've never taught me to submit to you. And now you want me to submit to God, who I don't see. And I see you every day of my life, and you've never trained me, you've never taught me to submit to you, Christian parent. Do you see the hypocrisy in that? We need to teach our children to fear the Lord. We need to teach our children that God is holy. Look at verse 11, chapter 4, verse 11. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the hearts of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sounds of the word, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is what? The Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. What do we get from these verses? We get that God is holy. We need to teach our children that God is holy. We need to teach our children in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you. And he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God has given you for inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. We need to teach our children that God is holy and that the holy God judges sin. The holy God judges sin. You know, we were at the SBC conference last week. And there was a song that the group was singing. And in the lyrics of this one great hymn, it talks about that Jesus died for sins. Well, that word sin was taken out, and what was replaced is Jesus died for our mistakes. That's a problem. That's a serious problem. That's a huge red flag. Nobody wants to talk about sin anymore. People want to talk about lostness. People want to talk about mistakes. People want to talk about screw-ups. People want to talk about faux pas. No, it's sin. 
We are Christians. We are people of the book. Let's use biblical language. We have sinned against God. So we need to teach our children that God is holy and God will judge sin. That's what a holy God does. Even in our broken world, we know in our many times sin-filled hearts, when we see a serial murderer run through the streets of Las Vegas, do we say, oh, we love this serial murderer so much. I hope the law doesn't catch him. I hope he gets to kill another 10 children. No, we would never say that. I hope we would never say If you say that, you need help. What we say is, this people have lost their children to a serial murderer. We want justice. We want the police to catch him and put him in court and put him in prison for life and throw away the key. That's what we want. So we understand that God is holy. We understand that God judges sin. Moses is not allowed to enter the land. He sees the land from Mount Pisgah, but he's not allowed to enter. Why? Sin. Sin. We also need to teach our children, verse 13, about the Ten Commandments, the law of God. I need to say this, and I need to say this very clearly. The law of God is not how you get saved. On your best religious day, if you drank 10 Red Bulls and you were paying attention, you would never ever fulfill and satisfy all the commandments of God. By the way, besides the Ten Commandments, there are other, there's another 800 moral commandments on top of the Ten Commandments that most Christians are not aware of, and you can never do 10, much less 800. But the law is good if one uses it wisely. The law shows us the holiness of God. The law of God shows us our sin. And the law of God shows us how we are to relate to God in our relationship to him and how we are to relate to each other as human beings made in the image of God. So the law of God is not how we get saved. But if you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ and turning away from sin, that's how you get saved. That's how you become a Christian. But if you are saved, then the law of God directs our behavior as Christians. It shows us what pleases God and honors God. We're talking about day-to-day Christian living. We're not talking about how someone becomes a Christian. I'm not talking about that. We need to understand this. So let me ask you this, dear parents, Christian parents, do you teach your children the things that we've talked about? Do you teach your children to fear the Lord? Do you? Or do you let them get away with murder? Do you teach them to disrespect you? Do you teach your children that God is holy and that God will judge sin? Do you teach your children the importance of the law? What else are fathers supposed to teach? Exodus 20, verse 12 says this, Honor your father and your mother. We know this. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You know, if, if we teach our children not to honor the Lord, and then you multiply that two, three, four generations in the future, what type of culture would you have? 
Would you have a culture, an environment of people respecting people? People honoring people? People serving people? Or would you have, without that, a culture of people who are prideful? All they want is what they want. They're not compassionate towards others. I promise you, if you take the word of God out of the culture, take the law of God out of the culture, this is what we're reaping. This didn't happen overnight. This has happened for years and generations. And you wonder why America is messed up. Because we haven't taught our children the importance of the law. We haven't taught our children to honor their father and their mother. We haven't taught children to respect elders. Honor your father and your mother. Are we more concerned about our children esteeming us? Are we more, more concerned about our children esteeming God? We don't, under, we don't understand our role and responsibility. But yet we understand that the children that God has given to us, they will disobey from time to time. They're children. They will disobey you from time to time. And it's interesting that in the Old Testament, most Christian parents are not aware that in Leviticus 20, verse 9, and Exodus 21, verse 17, that the reviling child, the disobedient, disobedient child, would actually be put to death, according to the Old Testament, according to Leviticus 20, Exodus 21, that the disobedient child would be put to death. Praise God. That doesn't apply now. Parents must discipline the disobedient children, and it's for their good. Every loving father that truly loves their children would discipline their children. According to Hebrews 12, it talks about that our earthly fathers disciplined us as it seemed good to them for a short period of time. But God disciplines us for our good so that we would be holy. Proper biblical discipline should lead every single person, including our children, to a great fear of God and a growth in holiness. Proverbs 19.18 says this, punish, I'm sorry, verse 18 says this, discipline your son for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Discipline your son. Discipline your children. Proverbs 13.24 says this, whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. You hear that, God's people? In what you call love, if you think you're a loving parent, you say, well, my child has sinned against me. The best thing for me to do is to love my children by withholding or restraining the rod of correction, the rod of discipline. The Bible says here, this is the correct translation, that you actually hate your child. You actually hate your child because you're more concerned about what the child wants instead of what God wants you know we were at this conference last week in Anaheim and brother Corey and brother Vladimir can attest to this and our wives that we watched this preacher preach on how he was treating his children and he says he says in his in his sermon he says you know I called my young boy I said son come here he wouldn't listen to me I called my boy a second time, son, come to me. And he wouldn't listen to me. And then on the third attempt, I said, boy. And then I got his attention. 
And then guess what? He came to me, but he came to me with crying eyes, and he said, why do you always discipline me? Why uh, am I always doing something wrong? Why, do you, why are you so hard? You're always disciplining me. And this preacher, I won't say no names, is crying. How about this boy sinned against you? You called him to you. Not once, not twice, not three times. The Bible calls that sin. And all of a sudden, this pastor twists it around that, am I being too hard on my son? Why don't you obey the word of God? Teach them that they are to honor God. They are to honor their father and mother. To spare the rod is actually hating your children. But if you love your children, you'll diligently discipline. I understand we don't do that perfectly. Pastor Rolo doesn't do it perfectly. When I don't do it perfectly, I ask God to forgive me and I ask my children to forgive me. I know I'm not the only person in this room that does that. But this is a balancing act. We need to discipline our children in a biblical way. And if you don't, you hate your children. And at the same time, we are to discipline our children in a way that doesn't cause them to be resentful or bitter or angry against you. Colossians 3.1 says this, Fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Ephesians 6.4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You are to teach your children biblical behavior and biblical doctrine. Those two go hand in hand. Let's land this plane. If you're not a Christian parent, I don't expect you to do any of this. Why? Because you don't know Jesus. You have no love for God. You have no love for Christ. You have no love for his word. You have no desire to obey him. And to be a non-Christian and try to obey the word of God makes no sense. What you need, parent, and we're grateful to God that you're with us, is you need the Lord. You need the Lord of salvation. You need his salvation. You need to turn from your sins. You need to trust in him. That is your number one goal. That is your number one need. You've sinned against God. You need to trust in Jesus. For those of you who are parents, you may be saying as a Christian father, why should I do any of this? Why you should do any of this is because God created you. God saved you for his glory. And you're to do all things for his glory. That's why you should do this. Marriage is for the glory of Christ. And so is your family and so is your child rearing. Your parental life is for the glory of God because you're going to give an account to the Lord someday. You will give an account to the Lord someday. And apart from Christ, you cannot raise your children in a godly way. So quit trying to raise your children your way. Raise your children God's way is prescribed in his word. God is not silent on this. And the Lord is not interested in you becoming a Pharisee or a legalist. I'm going to discipline my children. If you do that, apart from the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, you're going to train your children to be like you a mini version of a legalist. Teach them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wives, are you helping your husband to raise your children in a biblical way? Are you a biblical helpmate for your husband? Do you encourage him to lead the family well? To do it in a God-glorifying, Christ-centered manner? Are you doing that? 
Or the other alternative is you call all the shots. You make all the decisions, financial, mental, emotional, and spiritual. Every Christian is to run in his or her lane. They, are, they need to know their role and their responsibility. You need to know your role and responsibility. And the Bible is very, very clear on our role and responsibility. I don't have time to go into this, but let me just quickly say this in Ephesians 5. Because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus transforms every relationship, especially marriage and family. In Ephesians 5, 25, it says, Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The command is, Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's how you're to love your wife, in a selfless, sacrificial way. Wives, here's your role. Wives are to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. I've seen it many, many times in this church over 22 years. Wives don't want to submit to their husbands. They want to do all the talking. They want to make all the decisions. That's not right. You're to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. If your husband is encouraging you to sin against God and to break the law of God, you don't obey that. But as long as your husband loves Jesus and is doing his best to follow Christ and obey God's word, you submit to him. Why? As to the Lord. As to the Lord. Husbands, could it be that our wives don't submit to us is because we're not doing our job first? We don't love our wives as Christ loved the church? You know that's true. It's a strong possibility. Children are to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. Do we teach our children to obey us, honor us, because it is right to honor the father and their mother? So wives, do you submit to your husbands as to the Lord? And I will close with this. I have met over many, many years here Wives who have pestered their husbands over and over and over again until they have no more strength in their bodies and they can't even respond anymore. And they want to leave the church. This church, let me give an example of why they want to leave the church. It's because in our style of worship, we don't have the best drummer. We don't have the best vocalist. We don't have a choir. We don't have soloists. We don't have a pianist. We don't have X amount of instruments. So what these people want is an entertainment show. They want Cirque du Soleil in the church. That's what they want. They don't pay attention to the doctrine in the songs, the doctrine in the prayer, the doctrine in the teaching, the doctrine in the preaching. They don't pay attention. So they're willing to give up truth for the sake of a show because they want something that's comfortable with them. They don't want to be challenged. And so they pester their husbands, we got to leave. These people are too boring. By the way, from, just on a pastoral note, we vet every song. We don't sing songs in First Baptist Church of Lakes by accident. We vet every song. And so they leave in ungodly ways, I would say unbiblical ways. And wives, if, that, if that's you, I want you to hear something. Stop you're going to be accountable to God for your actions. You need to stop. 
Proverbs 14.1 says this, The wisest of women builds her house. The wise woman builds her house. But folly with her own hands tears it down. If you don't obey God and submit to the Lord, as to the Lord, you will tear down the family, which is a gift from God. And I see it all the time, leaving for unbiblical reasons. Fathers, you know your job. Lead your children, lead your families, invest in your children. What do your children see when you go to church or not go to church? What do your children see when you read the Bible or not read the Bible or pray? We make too many excuses, especially during COVID or now post-COVID, of reasons why we shouldn't go to church. Let me remind you of this. Hebrews 10.25, the strongest command in the entire New Testament, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That is the clearest command in all of Scripture in the New Testament that God's people are to come together physically to worship the name that is above every name. Internet church is not church. Listening to your favorite preacher online is not church. Andy Stanley doesn't know the problems that go through your life. R.C. Sproul, by the way, he's in heaven, by the way. He doesn't know the struggles in your life. John Piper doesn't know the struggles in your marriage and in your child rearing. But Pastor Roland, Pastor Ed, and Pastor Corey, and Pastor Vladimir know. We're not trying to compete with celebrity pastors. All we're trying to do is be faithful pastors and serve you and honor God in serving you and to be a blessing to you. When was the last time John Piper invited you over to his house for a meal? When was the last time R.C. Spoel prayed for you personally? you got to quit this nonsense. Celebrity pastors who know nothing about you, but they're the greatest preachers in the world, but they don't know your family. They could care less about you. What does your children see in your life, fathers? Are you leading your children? I want to encourage you, brothers, please listen. If you've sinned against God, repent. Man up. Start today. Do the right thing. Wives, if you have not been a biblical helpmate, be a biblical helpmate starting today. Children, if you haven't honored your father and your mother, do so today. Honor God with your life. The Lord will help you. And I want to say this. Single moms, we love you. And we want to help you. We want to be a blessing to you. We know being a single mom is difficult in today's culture. But biblical Christianity talks about we're to take care of the orphans and the widows. And there are many single moms who need help. Where's Makai Darnell Reed? Makai Darnell Reed, please stand up. How old are you, Makai? 13. I've known this boy for 13 years. You can, you can sit down. I remember when Anika was pregnant. This boy doesn't have a godly father, a godly role model to invest in him in a consistent basis. And I know Anika's doing the best that she can. All of you know I have a big tribe. I have the 13th tribe of Judah. I've got five kids. But I want you to meet my sixth child. I am his father, spiritually. He comes to my house for a meal. He's welcome to my house anytime. 
He sleeps over. He plays games with my kids. We have serious conversations. We have goofy conversations. We do Bible time together. We do devotionals together. We talk about anything and everything. That boy is my son, and he's welcome to my house anytime. Men, please listen to me. If we see a single mom in here who is desperately needing help, the best way you can bless them is be involved in their lives. We're not going to force ourselves upon them, but we're going to respectfully help them. Can we do that? Fathers, you know your role. And I said it 10 minutes ago, I guess I should say it now. I'm really landing the plane right now. Sermon in a sentence. Christian fathers need to be continually reminded of their God-given responsibility. This is a God-given responsibility to lead their marriages and families and spiritually invest in their children for the glory of God. We're investing in the next generation. Fathers, when you die and are promoted to glory, what do you want your spiritual legacy to be? You need to think about that question and start working towards the answer. And I just provided the answer from God's word. At this time, I want to bring up Brother Corey, Brother Vladimir. I correct myself, Pastor Corey and Pastor Vladimir. And if I could have two brothers bring up two chairs right here. Two Sundays ago, this church voted in the next pastors on the pastoral team. So what a lot of people like to think is that Pastor Rolo is the CEO and he makes all the decisions unilaterally. That means I make decisions by myself. That's not how plurality of elders work. When we make a decision, we make a decision as a pastoral team. So now we just added two pastors, which we've been praying for, for years, because the load is getting heavy. And we thank God for godly men who can qualify biblically according to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1. And they understand the role according to 1 Peter chapter 5. And part of the qualifications is to lead their wives and their family well. You guys have evaluated them. You guys have affirmed them. And now today we praise God for them and we're laying hands and ordaining them. So please join us. I'll start when you go. Yeah. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. It's been many years for this day to come. And we're grateful for these dear brothers. Lord, remind them of their role and responsibility. Remind them, Lord, to love their wives as Christ loved the church and to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Lord, we've seen them grow over many, many years, and we're grateful for what you've done in their lives. Thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that unites us together. Lord, please keep our pastoral team united in truth. Not united for the sake of being united, but being united for the sake of God's truth and the glory of your name. Lord, we praise you and we bless you. Lord, we also pray for their families, for their fatherhood, and for their husbanding. God bless them. We pray that you would keep them qualified in keeping their households in order. We pray for the wives. And while we acknowledge, O oh Lord, that there is no biblical office of pastor's wives, we also see that the wives of pastors go through 
supporting your husbands in ways that are unique and different than all others do. And so we pray that you would strengthen them both as family units, that you would always keep them united in preaching the gospel to their children and in loving one another and fulfilling their biblical roles. And we pray that you would use uh, their wives and these men mightily, O oh God. We pray that you would help them to shepherd the sheep, to shepherd the flock of God. And we pray that in all of it, Thank you, brother.